Welcome to Fork Pull Merge Push. This is a show about topics developers obsess over with hosts Escolati and guest engineers from around the world. Functional programming can roughly be described as writing programs by composing functions together. Category theory in programming is a set of concepts and rules, and some languages like Haskell or PureScript are strongly based on those. Today, in the studio with me is Antti Holvikari. Antti will try to help us understand why it makes sense to learn about these things from a pragmatic perspective. How will understanding what are monads or functors make you a better programmer? Antti has quite a lot of experience in this topic, so I for one look forward to this discussion. We at Reactor are also looking for more functional programming talent to join our ranks in New York, Tokyo, Amsterdam, Stockholm and Finland. So if you are interested, please remember to visit reactor.com careers. I'm pleased to have you here with me, Antti. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I don't know when this episode is gonna go public, but it's currently like a total snowstorm outside and I can wait for getting my Nordic ski equipment out there. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it. We should go to ski together too. But hey, to get us started, could you explain to me what category theory is from especially a programmer's viewpoint? Yeah, so um, uh, I think when when people say that programming is mathematics, I think they they... One answer to that is that it's uh, category theory, that they're referring to category theory when they say, when they refer to the mathematics part. So that's especially true in um, functional programming context. So in category theory, we we try to find kind of relationship between, relationships between objects, so, or sets rather. So, So it's natural when you think about functional programming because in there you're not doing things in sequence like do this then do this and and so on so you're actually just mapping from objects to some other objects so in that sense it's natural to think about um, category theory in functional programming so to me that's kind of uh, that's the key there um, but I, I view um, category category theory as a kind of from a more um, pragmatic point of view. So I haven't really studied category theory per se. So I start from a very pragmatic point of view and try to solve problem problems with it. So um, one could say that they are sort of like interfaces when you think about like object-oriented programming or something like that, where you kind of have these uh, common interfaces or you're programming to interfaces. But in category theory and functional programming, those um, interfaces are maybe more concrete or universal. So um, they're sort of like better interfaces, to put it kind of simply. So that's the way I see. Um, the first thing for me is that it's sort of like a uh, design tool in everyday programming. So once you start getting a sense of the different kinds of um, concepts in category theory, you can use it as a design tool. So you start um, seeing these same patterns over and over again, and it allows you to simplify a lot uh, your your um, your code. So that's that's the way I see. It's funny actually that you mentioned interfaces that you're used to having object-oriented programming because 
only now I actually realized that this is in many ways quite similar thing, but of course totally different in the sense that in object-oriented programming you kind of try to create those very high levels of abstractions with the interfaces and model the universe you are playing around with those interfaces. But in functional programming and probably in category theory, you kind of maybe are more closer to the actual code and you are more generic in a sense. Yes, so there tends to be much less of kind of these uh, interfaces in functional programming. So you're not, in object-oriented programming, you're building a, like a large object graph and you're sending messages between these interfaces. Whereas in functional programming, you're not doing that. You're just trying to find mappings from objects to other objects or, or sets. So um, it's quite different. <laughs> trying to like continue this kind of comparison, which is of course pretty artificial and maybe one should do it seriously. But while you have interfaces and the interfaces in object-oriented programming, they have methods and these are like the public APIs that you use to interact with other objects or other interfaces. But then you have laws in category theory. So could you explain to me like what these laws are? Uh, yes, so some smart people have realized that or found these um, uh, kind of, um, let's say, monads, functors, applicative functors, um, and they're defined by these laws. So they're nothing without the laws, and the laws define these uh, kind of concepts. So so if you ask what is a monad, then you can give the type signature and then a bunch of laws, and that's it. There's nothing else to it. It's only those. It's quite abstract uh, when you look at it, just like looking at the laws, it's like, okay, <laughs> what can I do with this? But then that is the whole point. So um, the laws give you a bunch of properties which hold for these, um, your data types, which implement these kind of interfaces or type classes or whatever you want to call them. So um, I don't know what else to say, except that they're defined by these laws, and the laws give you properties, and the properties are very useful when, when kind of reasoning about the code. So you can look at it and say, like, okay, does this kind of property hold? It does hold. Um, and th- then you can look at it from another point of view. So, like, um, given a data type, which properties does this data have? So uh, that allows you to kind of think about what sort of interfaces or type classes would this data type actually be able to implement? And that will also help you. So it's kind of a two-way kind of design there. Um, So yeah. Could you give me an example of a data type that could, for example, implement some kind of type class? Yeah, so let's say, I don't know, option or maybe type. Uh, It implements a map function. So you can map something inside it. So you can apply a function to the insides of that uh, maybe. So in the case of maybe, there's two cases. So there's two data types or data constructors. So the other one is the nothing case where you don't have a value. And the other one is the case, the the just case where where you have the value. And so when you apply the function to it, it will only map or call the function on the value when it is just and when it's nothing, nothing happens. Um, But that type also implements monad um, kind of or it can implement or at least in Haskell and PureScript it does so um, that means that it kind of supports this sequential chaining inside it as well 
So uh, that's one example. And you can also think about them as a hierarchy of kind of type classes. So in some languages, it's kind of uh, a must that you you have to follow this hierarchy of uh, type classes. So like in Haskell, you have to implement, if you want to implement Monad, you have to implement all the type classes up to Monad. So including functors, applicative functors and uh, Monads. I think that this starts to make sense to me when you are starting to use terminology like map, for example. I think that I have seen map functions somewhere, for example, when I've done some JavaScript coding or similar things. I don't know if there's a relation between, for example, map in the JavaScript array and the functor. It sounds pretty similar, but let's go into that later. I think that one of the problems in this all is that when I like decided at some point that, okay, now I want to like learn the basics of category theory because there were always some smart people around me who were like talking about these things. And I come from Clojure background, which is a functional programming language, but it's dynamically typed. And uh, if these things are present there, I'm not aware of it. So I decided that, okay, I want to learn about this stuff. And then I took a look of those laws and I kind of understood what I read but then I didn't understand anything in, in like in a pragmatic sense that I didn't understand. How can I like make use of these things? I think that that's one of the problems. So there has to be some kind of pragmatic approach in learning this stuff. Can you want to tell me how did you end up learning and discovering this stuff yourself? So I started writing uh, like using dynamic languages, um, you know, PHP, Ruby, Python back in the day. Um, and then uh, kind of got into uh, object-oriented programming a lot. So I studied uh, what is the best way to write code. And I remember that there was a, f- a phase where I, I kind of I reduced the mutation a lot in my object-oriented code. So whenever I was calling method, I was almost always just um, creating new objects all the time. So it was still object-oriented code, but I kind of saw that you didn't want to actually modify anything. So I just created new objects all the time. And that sort of started me on, on this path, path to functional programming. Then I um, started looking into Lisps, uh, so Clojure and Scheme and all those uh, family of languages and started kind of looking into functional programming. Um, then I remember I wrote Parser Combinator Library. Don't ask me why. Uh, it was probably one of my colleagues who kind of showed me how to how to do it. Um, so I I implemented a library uh, implementing kind of parser combinators. And I remember I once I had done it, I realized that I can't remember how, but I somehow realized that hey, this is actually uh, this is the applicative functor. So I, I implemented the applicative functor for my uh, parser data type. And then I basically removed all the code I had written. And I kind of realized that, hey, there's, there's something here. Like, like I was able to just remove code, like everything clicked after that. And um, then I sort of um, kind of realized that actually Lisps may not be the best languages in, in kind of studying these topics. And uh, I saw that Haskell and PureScript had syntax, which actually supported functional programming much, much better, especially kind of writing these combinator libraries. And up to that point, I kind of saw that or thought that, that the syntax didn't really matter. But when I started doing functional programming, uh, like really functional programming, I kind of realized that, hey, actually, the, the syntax is quite important here. And at that 
point, I kind of started looking into PureScript and uh, haven't really looked back. So you practically didn't actively seek out learning about category theory, it just kind of came as an evolution of learning stuff altogether. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't remember how I, like, was I actually kind of seeking answers? I bet at some point I was like, hey, what is this? Like, I need to learn more. There's always that. But it was quite natural. But I'm that sort of person who is uh, very uh, interested in, in the software quality and how to do things rather than maybe kind of the end product. I have to admit, like, I'm very kind of technology focused. Okay, I have to go back a bit. You mentioned partial combinators, which is something I would like you to say, explain to our listeners, because I think that there might be at least somebody who haven't heard of them just yet. So like in just a couple of sentences, what are partial combinators? Um, yeah, so if you want to implement, uh, if you want to parse something from uh, from a, like a long string, let's say like a programming language, um, parser combinators are like a functional way of doing that parsing. So uh, there are many, many variants of parser combinators, obviously, but basically the idea is that um, basically a parser is just a function which takes the input string and then returns something that was parsed and the rest of the string that is not yet parsed. So that's uh, sort of the basic idea. But around that, then you can just implement um, applicative functors and functors and monads And that way you get a very, very flexible way of implementing parsers. Um, they might not be the, the most performant way of implementing parsers, but they're, I would say they're very nice for um, learning functional programming. But if you're not interested in parsing, then it's kind of a boring domain. But, but it's, uh, it's surprisingly a nice way of tipping your toes into functional programming. Yeah, I remember maybe... Maybe a couple of years ago when I wrote you on Slack that, hey, I'd like to have a dive into PureScript. And then you immediately told me that, okay, Esko, now you need to check out partial combinators and write one of those. Yeah, I, I've said this same thing to some some other people. And sometimes people just tell me like, hey, I, I, I don't care about parsing. So I'm not <laughs> going, no, I'm not even trying. So that's, okay, fine. That's perfect, fine. <laughs> I think that there are also maybe other applications where you can like start using these theories and these concepts and learn about them but yeah parser combinators are definitely something that you can like start with yeah that's one way yeah it seems that we're going fast to the pragmatic part which is maybe the reason we are talking about this since we want to figure out at least i want to learn like how to apply these things in practice and not only in theory and you have told me that okay there are like type classes like monads and functors and all other stuff and they have laws that make them behave in a certain way and there are relations between these things to each other and i assume that there are like some can i say methods on these type classes that they implement. For example, functor, it implements map function. So how do you utilize these concepts in real life? Like, let's say you're in a TypeScript project, which is kind of obvious for developers nowadays. So what can you do with these things there? Uh, I will have to start from from FPTS. So FPTS is uh, a library which supports this sort of programming style. So they the library implements a bunch of data types like maybe or option and uh, like either and stuff like that so 
that's the way I kind of use these concepts in real life, uh, usually in, in the context of TypeScript. So that's a fantastic library to kind of learn. Um, there's a bit of a learning curve there, but um, once you kind of know how the library works, then then it's quite actually nice because it's not not like an ad hoc set of functions or utilities. It's quite like a cohesive library in that sense. So that's that's kind of the first thing I would say to start looking into. Um, one thing is to kind of start maybe leveraging algebraic data types or kind of start thinking in terms of data more. So TypeScript has discriminated unions. So by algebraic data types, I mean mainly like sum types. So you have uh, uh, product types and sum types. So product types are like records or tuples or something where you have a thing which has a few things inside it at the same time. But then you have sum types, which are um, a thing which maybe contain some other value or something else. So as mentioned, uh, the option or maybe it's a sum type where you either have nothing or you have something. So, so that's, uh, that's quite key, I would say, to kind of start leveraging some types. Um, because uh, TypeScript has quite good support for some types using discriminated unions. So you can kind of very ad hoc way define these unions with the pipe operator. Also, what is discriminated union? Can you explain that to our listeners too? Yes, uh, I can try. So... Uh, by discriminated, I think what we mean is is that there's something that kind of we can use to discriminate between the different cases. So um, what I usually do is I have like a type field. So let's say I have a if I had the option type which has nothing or something. So then the both of those are like records and both values have a type field. And the type field is kind of the discriminator that uh, tells you which of these values you have at, at runtime. So you kind of have something that discriminates between what do you have. So that's kind of it. And the union is just a kind of, yeah, union of these two types. There is also a thing called IOTS, which is, I think, made by the same person who made FPTS. And yeah, it introduces these concepts if you like are into runtime validation of stuff. Yeah, uh, so yes, it it, it provides uh, ways to um, read or kind of way to write codecs for your data type, meaning usually that you're trying to read um, something that is of unknown type, and you want to uh, parse it into something that is known at the type level w- what the value is. So you take a JSON blob. And then you you map it onto your own data type, and that is what it allows you to write. So um, it's true that IoT is kind of sort of often the first first way for people to kind of uh, dip their toes into FPTS land. So it might I would assume it might be quite um, difficult at first because when you when you call the codec. So you let's say you call decode on your on your um, codec. You get an either out and not not something else. So that's the first like okay, how do I get my value out? What I what I just decoded. So that's the first thing. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a different world, I guess, if you're not in that world from the get go. So 
still, it's it, it, it's a very good library. Both of those are very good libraries. I have been using the FPTS and of course IOTS myself in some projects, and my biggest struggle with FPTS is that the syntax of TypeScript, and I guess it's also part of the type inference capabilities in TypeScript, is that the code gets at at point very verbose. Like I have to put here and there those tactical type hints so that the compiler actually knows what my type is at some point. And other thing is that if I only take the IOTS, of course it has the FPTS as a peer dependence, so I have to have it too. I cannot have only IOTS, I, I always get get FPTS. But then, as you mentioned, the decode, which is the function used to like turn this unknown JSON blob to my domain object. So when I get the either there, and then I have this decision point, how I'm going to get the actual value out of the either, of course, I can check with the either is right function that, okay, is it a right or not? Meaning, like, has it a value or not? But then I'm going to do that stuff all over the place, which is probably something I don't want to do. And then it's very fast, slippery slope into using FPTS everywhere. I think that the biggest problem is that it's so verbose when you compare it to, like, pure script, which is, of course, designed around these things. Yeah, that is true. I guess it comes down to what, what is the price you want to pay? So if you value functional programming like a lot, <laughs> uh, then then you're kind of willing to pay a bit of a price there with, with TypeScript so that you kind of maintain this referential transparency everywhere in your code. And it has gotten be- better uh, in FPTS. So the, the API, it changed in, I think it was the 2 series where they um, kind of went all in on the pipe operator so there, I think the type inference got better a bit. But it's true that, for example, when you use either, there's a problem with the kind of the left side of the either, usually, so that you have to put the kind of type assertion or a hint uh, somewhere. So it is true. I, I don't have any kind of solutions there. You just have to kind of figure out what kind of code base you want to have. But I will say that I have now... Uh, had a few projects with with somewhat large FPTS code bases, and I would say that it has been really really nice. Um, when it compiles, it it usually works. There are n- not many places where where it would compile and not work. So it definitely improves the uh, quality. I would say. Yeah, I think that the most common argument in favor of using things like FPTS is increased type safety. And just what you mentioned, when it compiles, it just works. I think that I have had these WTF effects on my code, though, where I have made the code compile. And there have been some things that haven't been happening because I haven't been like programming stuff well enough. So I guess it's possible. Uh, yes, but it's difficult to say if that case was because of TypeScript, because the TypeScript type system is is unsound. So there are cases where it actually is not kind of strict enough so that it would reject your program so yeah it's difficult to say which which one is at fault because fpts is quite type safe usually yeah i think that it's very nice and it's actually quite easy to use you you quite fast discover the limitations or how to say rules where you need to maybe assist the typescript compiler yeah it's pretty obvious when you start using it yeah The, the key is kind of if it doesn't compile then you start adding those uh, assertions and then you get it compiling. But then you 
usually you can actually go back and remove yeah. some of those which you because usually the error was something else that you did so it was your fault but then when you added the type hints you kind of discovered the bug and then you can go back and remove the type hints so so usually it happens that i actually kind of just remove every every type annotation it still compiles okay yeah that's actually exactly what i do too yeah it's quite natural pattern i guess I think that one problem in FPTS, maybe it's kind of similar problem I earlier mentioned about when we talked about more theoretical aspect of functional programming, the documentation. I think that there are some good blog posts that explain like things, what are functors and applicatives and monads, but then they are quite theoretical. For example, I think that was it the monad blog post by Giulio Canti, which introduced Glacely Arrows, which is something that wasn't explained too well there or at least in a pragmatic way, so that I didn't, based on that blog post only, didn't understand why do I need to care about this stuff. So I think that there is still some kind of gap between total pragmatic way of utilizing FPTS or like category theory and, and the actual theory, which should be like bridged so that like people like me or other who, for example, let's say they have been working on TypeScript and web projects for years, but they just haven't yet learned about this stuff but they would like to, but they maybe don't then have time or maybe some kind of tutor or mentor to give them like instructions on how to like which documentation to read. I think that that's something should still be more like improved even better than it's now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not saying that the documentation isn't good, but I think that there is still some kind of gap that could be like filled. Yeah, I think there's the the problem of once you kind of know some of these concepts you kind of start looking at the almost you only require the type signatures so so it's kind of like when you know them you kind of see the documentation like oh this is super nice documentation but then someone else comes like what is this makes no sense so definitely there's a there's a gap so you kind of have to cross the gap um, first to get there but and definitely need some uh, material to to kind of understand those uh, i'm not sure what the correct way is is it is it for people to kind of seek material elsewhere about monads functors applicative uh, functors to kind of first learn those and then then start using some libraries but mm, yeah it's difficult to say because when i came to uh, using fpts i kind of knew what i what those concepts are so i don't have that kind of view i i also actually first started using pure script so i wasn't in that deep in, in that rabbit hole than you were but i still like knew the basic concepts when i started first using fpts but personally i think that the problem was that i knew about these concepts like for example what is applicative and what does it do but then how can i implement this stuff to do some more complex things in my application code and then i was like searching for examples and i didn't always find them so that's maybe maybe kind of a cookbook or something like that there are some learning resources and community documentations but yeah it's very great but it's i, I think that there's still something to be done but yeah so one begs the question about after all this how does the category theory actually affect the programming style you're having I think it has had a profound effect on my programming style. So as mentioned, when you think about in, in terms of category theory or in general, just functional programming in terms, you're, you think in terms of mapping from 
objects to objects. You are not anymore thinking about in what order I need to do things. You're not at all thinking about that. So you can kind of almost forget about that in many places because you're just mapping from a type to another type. So that's that's the key. And then the second thing is that it allows you to simplify a lot. So you have a problem and then you kind of start doing it and then you realize that uh, actually this is this is something else. So what happened quite recently for me was that I needed to merge two trees, sort of. And I wrote this like a plain reduce, like a reduce write function. And then I was, it was quite long and weird somehow. And I was staring at it and like thinking there's, there's something is, is up here. Like some, somehow this is, this is too weird. And then I realized that the thing I was actually trying to solve is just combining two nodes of the tree. So, so to me, that was a monoid. So a monoid is just something that has an associative operation. So you can kind of uh, concatenate them. Uh, um, in that case, it wasn't concatenation. It's just that uh, kind of the property is that you cannot switch the order of the items, but you can combine them in, you can put the parentheses in whatever order you want or in, in other places of the kind of combination. So I realized that it, it's actually just a monoid and then I implemented the monoid type class for my tree. And then when I had the monoid, which is just combining two uh, nodes, then I can say just fold. So th- there's, a, there's a function in AFPTS and, and in functional programming languages, which is just called fold. And it uses the uh, monoid for that data type. And it just, it just does it. <laughs> so that sort of thing is um, quite common. Uh, that it kind of helps you to simplify, to see things, what they really are. And another aspect is that you have some kind of data type first, and then you start thinking about kind of what is this actually? What are the properties of this data? And then you try to find these combinators. How, How can you combine these things? Uh, or this this data type you have, and that way you will kind of discover usually the very very uh, same concepts like functors and uh, monoids and stuff like that. So I guess you have to kind of think in these functional terms before you kind of start seeing those patterns. But that way it has affected uh, my programming a lot. So kind of allows me to think in terms I didn't even realize that were possible. So kind of see things in a much more high-level way, sort of. We earlier talk about, you and me both, we come originally from dynamically typed world, like like back in today. So uh, let's talk about category theory in that dynamically typed world. I also said that I don't know if it's present there, for example, when talking about closure. I know that I can... For example, I have a map function there, and it's something that probably comes from the functor. And of course, I know that I can apply it in Clojure, for example. Besides vectors and list types, I can apply it to objects, and it just works. It works differently, but it works, and I know kind of why. But is it present there? Are there these concepts somehow there? Yes, they are still there, but I would say they're not so commonly used. So 
there, I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, one is the lack of types. So there's no compile time type checking. So you sort of don't see the types. There are no type signatures around. So I wonder if that's one, one thing that contributes to people not kind of leveraging those concepts, maybe. One might be that some types and, and uh, yeah, yeah, usually like some types are not that prevalent in, in dynamic languages. I think that might be one possible reason. I'm not sure. But usually you don't have, you're not leveraging, let's say, options or maybes. There are other ways to do it. So maybe that's one reason. Um, maybe one reason is that you kind of don't have to use these abstractions because you can kind of not cheat, but make certain compromises somewhere that you don't need this sort of, you don't have to aid the kind of the compiler that much. So you can do things in more ad hoc ways and do do small compromises here and there. That might be one thing why you don't see see those that often. But there are libraries, obviously. I haven't actually used uh, dynamic languages in a while, but I have seen those libraries, and of course they're still there. They're exactly the same. If, if you have functions, you have those. If you have data, you have the same concepts. So yeah, people just don't don't tend to use those or you don't uh people don't talk in those terms that much of course there are other dynamic languages than closure which is kind of special since it's lisp language and that also means that it even has a different syntax altogether i did some research and there's actually this category theory library for closure called cats of course uh, we know that it's like a Maybe it's kind of port from the Scala library called Cats to Clojure, which offers you algebraic abstractions for Clojure and Clojure script. So if you really would like to use them, maybe that's something to try out. My initial impression is that maybe the code will start looking a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it might, yeah, might come down to kind of how you model your data yeah. in your program. So in Clojure, you have very nice. Uh, immutable data types mm. um, and yeah difficult to put my finger on it but I, I think it's kind of the data modeling it's more ad hoc so if you have if you've watched uh, Rich Hickey's uh, talks about uh, about these uh, yeah, I topics remember, I, I remember it when yeah, it came out yeah. so he, he, I think he's advocating more of this kind of ad hoc way of modeling data we can in- include the link to the talk in, in the show notes I guess yeah. Okay, so how can I get started? Let's say I'm interested in like all this stuff. So then what are good learning resources? What would you like recommend for me uh, besides like implementing a parser combinator? Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, I would tend to say that uh, the goal is not to learn category theory. Like I wouldn't like, of course, if your goal is to learn category theory, then then go seek some material. There is a bunch of stuff. But, but usually the thing is that uh, you maybe want to learn functional programming or you have, you have a functional code base and you, you need to uh, use functional concepts and that sort of stuff. So then, then just writing functional code and especially trying out uh, pure functional languages such as Haskell and PureScript, even Idris, stuff like that, you will immediately get used to these concepts um i think that's that's a fantastic way and sort of when you when you take something like pure script 
these concepts are so well done there that it's a much natural way of uh, learning these concepts because they're much more clear there. So then going back to TypeScript after that, you can um, more easily see how FPTS works, for example. So I would say uh, try to look at some functional programming languages uh, with good type systems in particular. So that's my that would be my recommendation. And then for the theory part, as I said, I haven't really sought after the kind of material that much for the very theoretical kind of uh, material. So I've tried a few times. I very quickly kind of get the same feeling when I was in school and studying something that was kind of like, uh, this is, I'm not, somehow, I feel like I'm not learning this. Um, I, I need to be quite concrete in, in, in my learning. So just writing programs. That way, that way I can kind of, uh, I can see myself learning more. So I would say try to write code. And I think that a pure script by example, which is a book written by Phil Freeman, there is now an up-to-date community maintained fork of the book on GitHub that you can maybe use to start learning the pure script part. Yes, that's that's an excellent way of yes. learning pure script. Exactly. Okay, this has been like super interesting episode to make and I learned so much new stuff myself and I really like hope that our listeners will start to sharpen this functional programming skills by learning, like, for example, PureScript, and by that embracing stuff of static type functional programming. And thank you, Antti, for joining the episode. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Until next time.